I was thinking about, you know, our discussion today, and I think one of the things that you and I really share is I think that we've chosen, if you want to say chosen, or we're on this really unconventional path, you know, I think personally, historically, culturally, I mean, pretty much by any criteria, we're on this really unconventional path. And I, I'm curious, you know, one of the things that I wanted to ask you about today is what was it from your early upbringing? What was it from, you know, the way that you might have grown up or where you were from or your, your, your early experiences that kind of set you on this path mm-hmm. in terms of being a journalist, the type of journalist, the type of uh, the subject matter that you that you deal with, et cetera, et cetera. Yeah, it is. It is pretty unconventional. Um, and I feel like everybody has kind of like a weird, there is a, always an origin story to this shit. Um, you know, I think for me, I grew up in a restaurant family. That is a super kind of normal thing in the Asian American community, but people don't really acknowledge that existence. It's, it's a weird thing. Like everybody orders takeout, Everybody has had sweet and sour chicken, you know, or General Tso's chicken or whatever. Like, that's such a normal thing. We don't register that these people have, like, lives and families. And, you know, but that was my family. Um, and we're Fujianese. We're from, like, that part of China where there's a lot of people who are, you know, restaurant workers or nail techs and stuff like that. And so, you know, a huge stereotype of a lot of Asian people is that we're meek and quiet and, like, law-abiding. But the people from my particular part of China have the opposite. So we are like loud as fuck. The stereotype is that we have no manners, speak at a comfortable scream at all times. Like, it's just like, you know, like that, that's like my people. Um, And it's funny because you don't realize that like model minority Asians are really out there. Like I remember, so I, my sister and I, we're the first generation in our family to go to college. So my parents didn't, they don't have degrees or anything like that. We go to college. I remember thinking like, oh, everybody's going to be from like a restaurant family, right? That's That's got to be the case. And I went there and I remember asking like another Asian what their parents did. And she was like, oh yeah, they're cancer researchers. And I was like, I didn't even know that we're allowed to do that here. Wow. Like I didn't know that we got right. to that point. But I think it's like, I didn't live with that other side where everyone, you know, excels in that wave of immigration where everyone was, you know, what what we considered high skilled workers. And so I think for me, a lot of the whole reason why I decided to go into like this particular beat was that it was kind of strange that you know about this like giant segment of the population in Asian America and none of that is covered in an accurate way. It's covered in a way that makes sense, you know? And then also I think journalism is, there's something about like the adrenaline or something like that, where you find some type of information and you're trying to uncover the truth. And it, it seems like such a cool, like noble cause. Every single day is different. Um, I have to say like, I don't know, 
if you can tell, I just, I definitely have like a problem with authority. And this has been like my entire life, like since I was, you know, in kindergarten, I remember, you know, I learned to read really, really young. My parents kind of like threw this book, it was like first reader. And I just like learned, my sister and I, we like learned by ourselves. And so they were like, you know, you're really smart, but for some reason, these, like your kid has a really tough problem following directions. And every single time I got, you know, my report card back, it was like, she can't follow directions. She's not following directions, whatever. Um, and honestly, like that is something that I've always had trouble with until journalism. And that's the only thing that ever instituted any type of like sense of sanity, I think in my life or like, you know, responsibility. And so. And you grew up in Woodstock, New York. Is that right? Upstate. um, the town is called Saugerty, so it's super little town. I think it's less than 1% Asian, I want to say. And so when I looked it up, it was something around, like, there's, like, 40 Asians there. And so that's, like, how many Asians you can find in, like, a single room in New York City. <laughs> like, that's, like, a very different from, mm-hmm. from my life now. But, yeah, there were there was really none. And so I think my whole sense of identity has, has shifted completely because of that. Yeah. So, so what was that like? Because I, I think that a lot of Asian Americans that, that grow up in smaller cities, smaller towns, kind of non-urban environments, share that kind of experience. I mean, from what you're saying, like they, they sort of, they feel that there might be this larger truth out there that they just don't have access to or they're, that, that they're not living necessarily. I mean, mm-hmm. was that your experience? Yeah, I mean, I think what it is is that if you don't necessarily see us anywhere and then, you know, your closest references to your race are just your family and then you don't know anything beyond that, right? It, it That perception of who you are is kind of warped. And so, I, I mean, I'm sure, you know, you, especially, you know, throughout music and also Always Be My Maybe, you've had probably instances, I'm sure, with, with kids coming up to you who were like, oh, my God, this was this was life-changing, right? I mean, I think um, there's there's a term, it's called symbolic annihilation. And so this is, this is a research term. They coined it in the 70s. I believe there were um, these, like, Larry Gross and George Gerbner. I believe those were the researchers' names. And symbolic annihilation is essentially this idea that if you don't exist in the fictional world, and if you're not reflected in the fictional world, you're kind of non-existent, like symbolically, in like the real world. And so you start to have these kind of feelings that are like, okay, am I do I matter as a human in society? You know, like what is my role in society at all? And then, you know, growing up for you as well, I'm sure you know that we don't see anything like us on TV. And so our view of what's possible for Asians is so limited. And it's so like you either grow to be exactly like it or you completely reject it you know and I think that a lot of Asians like me who grew up with you know not seeing a lot of people like us want to reject it and you're like you know what I don't feel like I am that nerdy whatever and so therefore I now hate Asians and it should never be that way right but but because we have such a limited scope of what is possible out there that ends up being your conclusion well, I, I think that that's interesting that you say that because growing up, I mean, I did grow up in a city, you know, I grew up in an urban environment, I guess we would say, you know, and there were 
a lot of Asians around me, but I, I still felt like I had that almost exactly what you're saying is you have this feeling though, that within popular culture and society at large, mm-hmm. you kind of feel like background music in, in a yes. lot of ways, you know, like maybe it was, okay, you know, the Asian takeout spot, right? You mm-hmm. know that we exist. You know that we're those five kids in your class that always seem to do the best at math. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Or you know that we're that... I, I'm, I'm making generalizations here, but I'm just trying to illustrate a point. You know, you know that we're there, mm-hmm. but you don't really know a lot about us. We don't really know a lot about us. You know, mm-hmm. we don't really... Like you said, we don't... We're sort of... You, you, you know, I just remember being in history class all throughout school. And back then, you know, this is, you know, the eighties and nineties. I mean, the history books were like three inches thick. I mean, they were real books, you know what I mean? And I just remember reading about Chinese railroad workers was the only sort of paragraph Mm -hmm. in that entire book. So the entire Asian American experience was encapsulated in this one paragraph, tiny paragraph about Chinese railroad road workers. Meanwhile, you know, I'm sitting in class, specifically the Japanese Americans my age have been here for at least four or five generations. You know what I mean? Right. But I'm sitting here next to this, this kid who just recently immigrated from Laos, you know what I mean? And then right here is a Mien kid next to me. And it's just sort of like, this is not adequate. This paragraph is not really adequate for right. describing our experience, you know? And so... Yeah. What I'm what I'm hearing is you shared sort of the the, the same thing, mm-hmm. but even with with less sort of Asian visuals around you. Oh, for sure. I mean, it's funny you bring up you know what you're reading in these textbooks, right? Because I think that I mean I, I'm assuming did you go also to a public school? I did for most of my life. Yeah, for most of my life, I did. Yeah. Yeah. I remember so clearly. So in the public school system, we don't really have great books. I remember, you know, for us, um, you know, the school board or the superintendent wasn't like super into education. (laughs) Um, And so we we didn't get a lot of new books all the time. And then, um, you know, programs, um, you know, we... During my time there, a ton of programs got cut. It was interesting, but, um, you know, one thing I very much remember is people would call our textbooks hippie books because a lot of times their moms or dads would be using the same books and they would never update with, you know, with more information or, you know, accurately reflect what was actually going on in our population. So that's exactly right. Like, I remember only reading about the railroads and it didn't talk much about like the conditions that they lived in or anything like that. It was just like, you know, Chinese people built these things and then that was it. And then the rest of the giant Asian American population that is, you know, encompasses so many different cultures is left out. And so what you have is like this general population who thinks that, you know, who continues to think everyone's Chinese. I'm I'm sure like you probably get this stuff online too, where People just blame you probably for the for the pandemic and they're but you're not even Chinese. So it's like we have an issue, you know, with how 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 Asian Americans are even defined in our schools. I mean, it's it's I think that because we weren't really explained like that, I I definitely had trouble understanding what Asian America meant and, and the people around me definitely did too. 
Yeah, and I mean, I th- I think that that's a that's an issue that certainly you're dealing with in your work now, and any of us who are public figures are dealing with in our work now. Is that we're we're people? I I think are slowly, very slowly, starting to understand that we're not monolithic. You know, we're not monocultural as a group. You know, it's we all have different histories. We all have different um, culturally from from sort of group to group to group. We can be very different. You know, we're not all Chinese. Yeah, totally. Right. I mean, that's that's been a thing since I was a kid, you know, and yeah. I think slowly, very, I mean, at the speed of like a crippled turtle that's starting to change, <laughs> you know what I mean? But right. it's happening very, very slowly. And, you know, I mean, what was your experience then? So when you left upstate New York, where did you go to college? I went to Georgetown, which is not upstate New York, that's for sure. I mean, how did that alter your perspective? Was that like just total culture shock when you got there? Or? Yeah, I think, um, you know, upstate New York is pretty like working class. A lot of people say it's really redneck. I think from the town that I'm from particularly is pretty um, you know, like pretty, it feels really redneck. Um, and I think that for so much of my life, because I hated my hometown and like not feeling ever like I was ever going to fit in or, you know, have any type of social standing because that's all you care about when you're in high school. Right. Um, I just wanted to go somewhere super different. I was like, wow, what could be more different than this? And like a preppy ass, you know, high society kind of school. And then I get there and I'm like, and then I find out that, you know, no one else is really from like Chinese restaurant culture. And then I also feel left out. So it's like, it was a really, it was a weird thing, but it was there that I really saw Asians for the first time. And then these Asians were not only of all these different types of races or different ethnicities, but also, you know, they, they weren't hiding their Asian-ness, like they would openly eat their food or like enjoy different cultures food. And to me, like that very baseline thing was mind blowing. Like, I don't know if you remember your first time having pho for me, that was like such a big deal, you know? And it's weird because I, I never experienced any of that. College was the first time I ever had sushi, things like that, which are super, you know, don't explain much about Asian America at all were huge deals for me when I got there. And so it really did alter a lot of what I thought could be possible for Asians. And then, you know, it did also teach me a lot about this model minority because I just, I, I didn't know that they were out there. I thought everyone was like a first generation kid, you know, going to college for the first time, Mm -hmm. you know, nobody else knows what internships are either. And nobody else's parents can really navigate this whole system. Like I really thought that that was everyone else's experience and that just turned everything upside down. So you felt liberated. I mean, you felt, did you feel like, like this sort of cultural emancipation, you know, like you were just suddenly, Oh wow. Look at this. Look who we are. You know, look what we can be, you know, look, look at all these different experience and all these different experiences around me. Was that sort of the feeling that you had? Yeah, I think that um, it was different in the sense that I understood that we had agency over, you know, our anger. Like if something was 
racist, you could, you can now say that it's racist. You can't, we don't have to be thankful that we're in America. You know, I realize that you can say something when something's like absolutely fucked up. Like, like that bat fried rice shirt, you know, like you understand that now if that's not okay, you can absolutely say something. And I think that was really eye opening in that experience. But I think in another way, it was a, it was also, it felt really alienating as well, because I think a lot of the students there, you know, didn't necessarily come from a similar background or, you know, they might've been Asian American, but, you know, their parents could speak perfect English and they have navigated some type of, you know, higher education. Um, And so I still felt a, a sense that I didn't quite fit into that Asian American scene. Like it was still a little bit different to me. Um, and I remember, you know, there was a point where, where my mom asked me, she was like, you know, like, do you actually, do you tell people what we do for a living? And, and she was basically just trying to be like, you know, like you're, you're with fancy people now, like, don't tell them where you come from. Don't tell them what we do. Um, you know, right. like you are living in a different life now. Um, and it was such a weird thing, you know, to have to grapple mm-hmm. with the fact that within Asian American culture, there is a strange hierarchy and there is, you know, this kind of sense that you can't be super proud if you're like a worker from like the working class, you know? Um, And so that was eye-opening in itself. I think that because I had these kind of like dual experiences, I... I understood that, you know, now it's cool to be Asian, but there's a lot of work to do, you know, like it, it, it kind of, it gives you like a mini sense of what the larger Asian America is going through and what, you know, the rest of America thinks of us, you know, it, it's, it's a weird feeling, very conflicting. So that's interesting. So, so you felt like, your awareness had expanded in general, but you still necessarily didn't feel like you fit into this reality either that you were being exposed to in college. Right. Yeah. That's interesting. And and what you say about the way that your parents coached you, you know, Mm -hmm. about what to say and what not to say in the, in the presence of certain kinds of people, you know, I think that that's something that, that I think that's kind of, while we may have a lot of, differences, intercultural differences as a group, as Mm. Asian Americans, that's definitely one tenet or principle that seems to be a recurring theme among Asians and Asian families. There's a lot of do's and don'ts, you Mm. know, culturally that we say that we can't talk about or the way that we the way that we deal with adversity, the way that we deal with trauma, the way that we deal with social and societal acceptance, you know, like we can't say, like in your, in your case, your, your parents were like, you know, like we can't talk about what we do for a living, you know, in other, in other situations. And I think like just coming back to the bat shirt, you know, like now it's okay. You know, we can, we, we have these tools, we can get online, we can talk shit if we don't like something. But I think for, for my parents' generation, for your parents' generation, a lot of times the answer was, the coping strategy was, don't say anything, mm-hmm. keep your head down, keep working, right? it'll get better, you know, 
almost like if we were to advocate for ourselves, we would be wearing that. We would be wearing whatever people are saying about us, or we would be wearing it just by acknowledging it and protesting it. We'd be wearing what people were saying about us. Good. I mean, especially the negative stuff, you know what I mean? So I think that that's so interesting for me because it certainly ties into what you do now, because that's all you do at this point is advocate for the truth, right? Advocate for our truth. Mm -hmm. And I'm, I'm, I'm interested how you made that transition you know, from growing up in this small monocultural town, mm-hmm. then being exposed to a certain segment, a certain kind of Asian American in college, mm-hmm. and then really taking this this other path, you know, that, right. that people from either of those two, this trajectory that, that people that had experienced either of those two scenarios probably wouldn't have done. Yeah, I do think it's, so in college, one huge thing that kind of happened for me was I started, one of my biggest mentors in life still today um, is the sociologist Michael Eric Dyson. And he deals with a ton of issues in the black community. But I think that was the first time someone explained something to me in terms that I could really relate to and understand. And I'm sure you get that too. It's like if someone explains, so I learned a lot about uh, social justice through hip hop. And that was my first introduction to it. And I think um, Hassan Minhaj kind of talks about this too. It's like immigrant families really relate to hip hop because it's about coming out of a struggle. Um, And that's like our doctrine, you know, is like, trying to make shit work when you don't have everything to make it work and and coming out victorious. Um, And that's all of us want. And so I think for a lot of us, an introduction to a lot of different issues is hip hop. And Professor Dyson, for me, broke it down in a way that was not, not only made hip hop kind of like the star and not only made it like a very legitimate form of like, education. Uh, It also explained something to me that I realized, you know, you didn't have to grow up in like a fancy family to understand it. You could enter into the academic world through something as incredible as this music. Um, And that was huge for me. I took uh, many classes with him. You know, I speak to him regularly still. And a lot of what he talks about is how, you know, there's this myth of the post-racial America. And, you know, I think Condoleezza Rice has some quote about how, like, it's great that we can live in a society where there are equal opportunities for everyone. Because now, you know, we live in this post-racial racial America. And that's, that's not true. That's not facts. That's not anything. But as soon as I started taking courses from him, learning from him, that was, you know, the light bulb went off and was like, okay, something, something is off and the truth is still not really out there. And I think, you know, I applied to a lot of different jobs. I think for me, HuffPost was an interesting one because I realized that they have all these, or they used to, they used to have all these different voices sections. They had black voices and queer voices and women, Latino voices. Um, And then, you know, I was like, wait, where, but there, but there's literally no Asian section. You can have 
all these voices and you really are just going to ignore Asians. Um, and so, you know, a lot of my interest in going there was to see what was going on and what was, you know, and why media really looked like that. And so, you know, we finally did end up launching that section. And I have to say it's, you know, it had a lot to do with finding the truth and being really, really curious as to why something like that doesn't really exist for us in mainstream media. You know, we don't have anything to represent ourselves. Um, And then, you know, at the time there was all these rumblings about representation and entertainment. And, you know, we can't see ourselves in movies. We can't see ourselves in TV shows, you know, and we're going to protest that. But there was also this completely missing conversation about, but what happens if no one's there to cover it? What happens if no one's there to cover, you know, how any of these political policies will affect our community? What happens when these different legislative actions are passed or not passed or, you know, what happens to Asian America? And maybe there's another side of the story. And so it really is just out of like some sort of stubbornness, you know? And I think you bring up how that last generation, I think it's a lot of this like Maslow, Maslow, right? Maslow hierarchy of needs where you focus on survival first and those essentials. And so that's a lot to do with food and housing and just language access and these things. And so they didn't have like that ability to take it a step further and protest a lot of this because they just did not have the means to do that. And so now that we do, it just feels like a huge disservice to not do something with it. You know, like I, I think I marvel a lot at how in one generation, you know, my dad couldn't speak any English or anything. And he came to this country as, as a restaurant worker. And then now like my job is to think all day, like that's really crazy. And so if I don't use that and do something really real with it, it's, it's such a huge disservice to everyone who came before and could not say anything, you know? It just, it feels like a wasted privilege. You're absolutely right, you know? And I think it, it, what you said just now, it really hits home with me in a lot of ways because even to this day, I guess, I, I reflect on some of my earlier experiences, you know, mm-hmm. when when I was first starting out in the early 90s. And, you know, there was really nobody that I could point to. There, No, there was there was nobody that I could point to and say, oh, hell yeah, you could totally make it as an Asian American rapper. Look at all the precedent that's there before you. Right. I mean, that that. It just didn't exist, you know? And the reason being was that, it's like you said, I mean, one of the reasons is that we could make all, and we could make all these, all the strides that we wanted, but unless there was somebody there to document it Mm -hmm. in a way that was culturally relevant, Mm -hmm. then it, it sort of just, goes under the radar indefinitely, you know? And even to this day, I think that's one of the challenges that I feel is, um, and and I wanted to ask you about this because sometimes even to this day, I feel like I'm out on an island because Mm -hmm. when when I put out, I guess two two years ago, it it was now, I put out my 10th album, 
okay, mm-hmm. which was which was um, quite a life, right? right? And huge milestone for me, not not just as an artist, because most recording artists they don't make it to ten albums; they just right. don't. You don't hit double digits, let alone as a career independent artist a mm-hmm. career Asian American independent artist. I can keep throwing adjectives in there. You know what I mean? Right. And, but the thing that I, I noticed was that my publicist, my Asian American publicist who I hired, who is a career publicist, you know, he worked backstreet boys. I mean, he worked all these, you know, like right. huge groups, like all through the nineties and the two thousands of every genre, you know? So he's, He's tied in, you know, I wasn't dealing with, and, and as much as I could in my whole career, I wasn't dealing with rinky dink personnel. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Like, he was tied in and he would take my story that was associated with this 10th album mm-hmm. to all the various media outlets. And they would say, look, this is his 10th album. Number one, that's a big deal. Number two, well, first and foremost, the album's good. This is how he was pitching it. The album's great. It's one of the best of his career. Number two, it's his 10th We know that's uncommon. Number three, first Asian-American artist to do so. Mm-hmm. Number four, first Asian-American artist to make the greatest hits in the history of American music. Got mm-hmm. two movies coming out. Always Be My Maybe, and I think at the time it was um, uh, Sorry to Bother You. First, 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 first. And and he would come back to me and he would say, all these big name publications, institutional publications that we've all heard of, that we would love to see our own write-ups in, they would say, so, that's not enough, you know? Yeah. All that told me is exactly what you said. There is nobody in these buildings. There was nobody in these venues there is nobody there there are no people there's nobody that looks like us mm-hmm. working at these huge mainstream platforms right that when it comes across their desk they say oh wow that is a big fucking deal mm-hmm. you know what i mean this is newsworthy we need to write about this right. it wasn't enough you know just this sense yeah. that it, it, it's in it, it, if it's not people like you know, Kimmy sitting in that desk and it comes across her desk or, or she's going out and seeking out this information, it sort of falls on deaf ears and all the things that we feel like are newsworthy and all the accomplishments and the strides that we're making are not being documented and reported on and celebrated necessarily because there, there's nobody sitting in those positions that, that feel like it has cultural relevancy. You know, or cultural right. relevance, you know what I mean? I mean, even now, I mean, I was talking, do, do you know Bohan Phoenix? He's also another, he's like in with the, yeah, yeah. you know, I think he, he he's in with that scene, if you know what I'm talking about. Yeah. Um, I was talking right. to him a couple months ago and it's interesting to hear. So one of the main issues right now is that, I think Asians are really like popping off in hip hop. They're really like, there is going to be a moment. I don't know how long it's going to take, but it's started. Like, I feel that Um, we've started to get some clout in the entertainment industry. We're starting to be in movies and all this. And I think because of that, a lot of these Asians who, when they were younger, 
didn't see any of this now want to be in front of the camera. They want to be, you know, the star who is making the music or all these things. I think for me, I never really had the desire to do any of that. And I think a lot of the power lies behind, right? And so it is a lot of, you know, these reporters or writers. It's, you know, people who are screenwriters or film execs um, who get to greenlight a lot of these things, who get to say something is appropriate for these mainstream audiences. And one thing Bohan is talking about was that like, we just don't have anyone in those positions. And so we have a lot of people who are in front of the camera or want to be in front of the camera. Very few people who don't have desire to do so, but understand what it means to have a seat at the table, you know? And so I think that that's, really the next step because it is it is interesting it's like you know when you talk about your story that makes a lot of sense to me as an asian american and then you wonder you know if you go to a place like vibe or complex or whatever and you know the person the the reporter or editor who sees it are they going to be asian american are they gonna understand why it's so moving for us to see something like always be my maybe like are they going to know that because have they had that their whole lives like I realized the one thing that's like kind of funny is we see something like always be my maybe and we cry you know it's it's a huge deal for us but you know when when like a white person sees friends it's not an emotional thing when they see any other sitcom it's not an emotional thing because it's just something that has been part of the American lifestyle for so long. And so you do have to wonder, you know, if you don't have diversity in these positions of power, what happens? Does any of this even get noticed? Well, I think also we don't, we, as far as showbiz goes, mm-hmm. we don't have the privilege of being able to take our legacy for granted. Not yet anyway, because there's not enough there. There's just simply not enough material there for mm-hmm. us to be like, oh, so you got your movie greenlit? Okay, that's cool. You know, great. What's next? You know, we, we just don't have that. We don't have that luxury yet of this huge body of work as a mm-hmm. culture that we can point to. And, and there's such an abundance of material there that we're able to take it for granted. You know what I mean? I think I saw on, on that note, I think I saw Chris Rock one time say he I think he said something like black people. We just don't have we can't just suck. We can't we, we can't we don't have the privilege, the privilege yeah. of being able to suck. In other words, yeah. saying like we have to be superhuman, you know. Right. And that's something I have that that conversation is something I have with a lot of Asian-American artists, Asian-American actors and and filmmakers and so forth is that we have to be so superhumanly good for so Mm -hmm. long. I mean, just one percent excellent every single day of our career that has to span 20 to 30 years. And I would be lying to you if I didn't feel that pressure every day, you know, Mm -hmm. because in a lot of ways I felt like while we may be living in 2020. I feel like in showbiz, sometimes for Asian Americans, we're in the 50s. You know, right. we're in the 1950s. It's like I got to be Sammy Davis Jr. I got to be able to sing, dance, act, produce, rap. But, you know, it's like I have to, to be able to do it all at an incredibly high level. Not even to succeed, but just to exist. You know, mm-hmm. and I think 
once we've turned the corner on that, which I, I think is coming, but once we've turned the corner on that, and like Chris, Chris Rock said, we can suck and still exist, you know, and still be present in this space, then, then I think we've achieved something, you know, oh, that that's, oh, yeah. that's, has a lot of lasting value. That's a great point. I mean, I've, I've reported on, so I believe it's the Asian American Media Coalition, and they release a report card every single year grading the major networks on how well they're doing in terms of Asian American representation. I don't know how many people have gotten an A. That's so fitting. Yeah, right? <laughs> exactly. Just, so on brand for us. The fact that we would issue a report card. <laughs> yeah, totally. Just, just the fact that we would issue grades. Yeah. That we would give networks a GPA, right? Yeah. <laughs> and they fail a lot of them. A lot yeah. of people have failed. I think Fox failed the last one. They didn't, they did not, I don't think they gave any info or something like that, which... Some people don't, um, and some people, you know, they don't take these media watchdogs as, as seriously. But I know that Daniel Maeda, he is the chair um, of this coalition, and he did mention it's like you can't really consider us equal until Asian American projects are allowed to fail, and they're allowed to fail over and over. But there is some faith that you take a risk and that you're able to, you know, see what happens. Because right now it's interesting. And I don't know, maybe you felt this with Always Be My Maybe, where if that went out and that didn't do well, then maybe Netflix will never want another, you know, rom-com, Asian American rom-com again. Like it is kind of like a weird pressure. And I don't know, maybe you also feel that with albums too. It's like, you know, what happens if this next one isn't my best work or it isn't, you know... What, but but as you've mentioned in in your songs, you don't do shit that you've already done. So I'm sure I'm sure you'll be fine. LB. <laughs> well, th- thank you. I mean, but but yes, 100. percent I mean, you're absolutely right. I mean, we're, we are sort of in this position where to say failure is not an option is just not a motivating m- mantra for us. It's it's the fucking truth. You right. Know? It's the fucking truth. Like I don't have the luxury of being able to to put out substandard material. I just don't have that luxury. It's like everything I do, my whole career is dependent upon my next album and my next album. I think that's true for every artist to a degree, but there's an extra layer there for those of us who, you know, if we do do something that's considered to be subpar, we might not get another shot, you know? I have this song on, on Quite a Life, it's called uh, Same But Different. And, um, you, you know, I think the line that I said, the line that I said was, they said Asians can't rap, so I had to be exceptional. There's mm-hmm. no precedent for that. I had to be successful, you know what I mean? And that you, you w- when you're in our position, a lot of times you feel that way. You don't have any leeway you cannot put out anything that's subpar because it could mean career death, you know, Mm -hmm. and I'm not going to necessarily get another chance. And I I mean, I think for, at least for me, you know, where I differ from some of my, my, my acting, my acting peers and my filmmakers, it's like you said, for actors, they're dependent upon somebody hiring them, Mm -hmm. providing them with a, a role, providing them with a script et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. 
for musicians, for artists, we write our own scripts. We write our own roles. Thankfully, in this era, we're able to put out our own music. I mean, I wouldn't be able to exist, I don't think, if I was dependent upon the machine, if I had to go out and get a record deal every time I wanted to put out an album. That's just not, that's not realistic. I, I don't, right. not, not just for, for, for most artists these days, but particularly for Asian American artists. And I think when you're talking about what, what, you said Bohan Phoenix, was that, that's who you were talking about, right? When yeah. you're talking about uh, artists like that, they have this whole machine now at their disposal, which is self-created, you know? And I think yeah. that it has been the path forward for us, particularly as musicians, you mm -hmm. know? And I, I'm just curious, like, what is it like for you knowing that you're one of the few out there doing this kind of work, maybe the only one working at a mainstream news outlet, which mm -hmm. now at first was Huff Post and now Huffington Post and now it's NBC. Mm -hmm. What is that like sort of navigating that machine and, and just day in and day out trying to, to present the kind of stories that you do? Yeah. I mean, it's, it, it is a ton of pressure because, you know, Asian America is huge. And I understand, you know, my yeah. people, you know, my parents' people, you know, how we operate really well inside out. Um, but I can't account for every single group. And so what that means really is just, totally. you know, you, you can't really like, you cannot represent everyone because you don't have that lived experience. But in order to do things really responsibly, you have you must reach out and you must envelop yourself in all these communities. And so it's it's scary because you cannot get anything wrong. Everything forward is kind of, you know, charts the path for the rest of news media and how they really cover Asian Americans. Um, th there's people like Frank Xiong, who I think he's been doing this for a long time. There's people like Jeff Yang. Like you just see when, when one of us publishes one of our pieces, you'll see Asian Americans will share it everywhere. And, and that kind of tells you that there are so few people that this is kind of like you end up being the voice. So if you don't do this the right way, it's not you know, it, it's going to make a huge dent for, for like negatively for Asian Americans. Um, and I think that, you know, it's been really important for me to make so many connections with like, you know, local community groups and really reach out and ask people how they're doing, make sure I get experts on everything. I think that a huge issue with race reporting is that, you know, a lot of times it's just a big old rant. It's like a rant and then people publish it and they just, you know, it's like that hot take and it's not necessarily backed up by anything. And I think that, you know, a lot that has to do with race is it comes from feelings and it comes from a lot of emotions that we've all experienced. 
But the truth is, is that the rest of America is not going to give a shit and they are not going to believe you unless you back it up with facts. You back it up with an expert. You go and reach out to scholars who have studied this, who have researched this, who have absolute, you know, empirical proof that these things are happening. Um, and so to me, it's, it's a really scary thing, but it's also really exciting because you know that, okay, there, there's a truth to be told. We're all going off this feeling, but you know, how do you confirm any of these things? And so talking to enough people, making enough connections, um, ensuring that everything is really accurately done, I think is, is just, you know, it's an obsession of mine for sure. Yeah. I, I, and I think, I, I think that. I, I just sense that that's gotta be a lot of pressure to get it right a hundred percent of the time mm-hmm. and be the only person there in that seat. When, like you said, we're such a broad group, you yeah. know, and there's so many voices that exist yet. There's only this very narrow space for us to occupy, you know, and mm-hmm. there's at this moment, there's only a, a select few voices and how do, how do we represent this really diverse group of people that is not monolithic, you know? And mm-hmm. I think, you know, on that note, as we've seen now, you know, as we're in this, the, the coronavirus COVID-19 era, mm-hmm. we are seen as monolithic group we are i mean this has been kind of an eye-opener for me because you know as you know you've been on the forefront reporting about this daily there's this really really troubling wave of anti-asian violence anti-asian american violence or anti-asian violence worldwide it's happening you know and we are being seen as chinese it is being characterized at the very top levels of leadership as the Chinese virus. And I want people to get a sense from you, from somebody who's on the front lines, really dealing with this day in and day out, the kind of things that you're seeing, because I have the feeling because it's not being covered in the mainstream, a lot of people, a a lot of my fans are going to be hearing for this, about this for the very first time, you know, Mm. and it's, it's, it's something that, you, you know, I'd love to get your take on as somebody who's in the trenches dealing with this. Yeah, it's definitely an issue. Um, And people, I mean, I was just talking to a lawmaker yesterday who she was saying how she gets calls all day from people panicking because they have no idea how to deal with this racism. Um, There's just, you know, everyone, we are already dealing with crazy tensions right now because who the hell knows how to deal with a pandemic? This is just something that I think in our lifetimes, we were not prepared for mentally, physically, you know, government. It came to a, came as a surprise. On top of that, we are dealing with these anxieties because of this heightened anti-Asian sentiment. Um, I know that there was a commission that released, I believe it's like, New York City's Human Rights Commission that released a report and there were definitely, you know, hate crimes and hate attacks have been up significantly. Um, And, you know, a huge portion of that is anti-Asian racism. 
And then I know that different hate crime trackers are all just, you know, collecting all this data. A lot of different Asian American organizations are tracking these hate crime incidents. Um, I know that Representative Judy Chu, who does, who, she's the chair of the Asian American Caucus in Congress, she, she had mentioned that, you know, it is around 100 incidents a day, but that's likely very underreported because you do have a huge segment of the population that many experts point out are, you know, undocumented immigrants who, if they do go to the authorities or they report right. any of this, they fear being deported. And so it is a right. terrifying time. And so I think that um, a lot of people right now want to make the issue about geopolitics. You know, it's like, who do we blame for the start of this? Do you blame China? And then China goes and and just passes the blame onto the US. And because of this back and forth, there is, um, you know, a lot of lawmakers have continued using language like Chinese virus or Wuhan virus as kind of like a geopolitical strategy. And I know that uh, Grace Meng, uh, Congresswoman Grace Meng, she had also mentioned it's, you know, it might be just a tactic to distract from Trump's mishandling of the pandemic. Um, mm-hmm. so there's all these kind of questions going on now. But, you know, as a lot of experts have also pointed out, you can't ignore the fact that, you know, using language like Chinese virus or Wuhan virus unnecessarily ties Chinese people and also Chinese or just Asian Americans in general, because people aren't going to go and look at you and try to figure out what ethnicity you are. They're just going to assume that you're Chinese. So it's going to end up being all of Asian America. You know, you can't ignore the fact that these attacks are on the rise. And so, you know, that language can be really scary. And I, I don't know if you've gotten this, you know, these comments yourself where people are, you know, they say stuff like, oh, well, we called it the Spanish flu or we called it whatever, MERS or whatever, which is Middle Eastern Respiratory Syndrome before. And we said these things before. And so, you know, there's nothing wrong with it. You just call it by whatever location. And John C. Yang, uh, he's at Advancing Justice. And he noted, he was like, you know, People might be people may bring this up all the time as a defense, but language evolves. We all evolve. It is no longer okay to say chink, right? Like we don't we don't call people that. We, human beings should know we don't say that now. Language evolves, and so we should understand that you know with more awareness and understanding that it doesn't quite come down to just semantics. There's an actual, you know, consequence that we change the language. And then, you know, the World Health Organization actually, you know, they completely revised their guidelines in 2015 to ensure that naming practices would not have an adverse effect on different communities or or even different industries. Like swine flu was was renamed, I believe, to H1N1 because the pork industry took a huge hit from this misunderstanding that you could get the swine flu from just eating yeah. pork. So even something like that, I mean, people just have to have to keep this in mind um, because the hate incidents, they are very real. And we hear about this every day. Um, I don't think you even have to be in America to know that this is happening to Asian Americans anymore. Mm-hmm. I mean, and, and the, the really sad thing for me was that 
a lot of these are crimes against the elderly. Right. You know, we see a lot of elderly being targeted. I think I read two thirds of the incidents are against women. Mm-hmm. And I, I've seen reports where whole families, including children, were being attacked, you know, or taunted. Um, um, yeah. And it was surprising. It was surprising to me also to see a lot of the documented incidents happening right here in the Bay Area, where I am, you know, which is historically one of the most liberal areas in America. You know, I mean, that's our reputation. But then the thing that I realize also is that there's a lot of Asians here. There's a lot of us here. So it kind of makes sense that we would feel the brunt of that here in a lot of ways, because there's just a lot of us here, which means that there's a lot of us who can be targeted here. You know, right. this is not a, I'm not trying to tie this, but I don't know if you saw the, the, the video of the guy at target. He was a Filipino dude mm-hmm. who, you know, hashtag coughing while Asian, you know, at mm-hmm. the self checkout line, you know, mm-hmm. I think he just like everybody else, I think he had like a, a family pack of Charmin that he was trying to get out of the store with or something. I'm not sure, you know, but he coughed. Some guy got up in his face, you know, and this was at the Saramani target, which a lot of people don't realize. I mean, Saramani is in Daly city. 99% of the population of Daly city is Filipino. You know what I mean? So for somebody to feel that emboldened to get into somebody's face, to get into a Filipino guy's face, uh, in a city where Filipinos are the dominant culture in, mm-hmm. in that city. I mean, it really tells you a lot about how, how spirited this sentiment is, this anti-Asian sentiment is, unfortunately. Right. And um, I, I'm just, I'm curious to hear from you if the advocacy work that we are doing the advocacy work that the that lawmakers and, and, and other politicians and other people of note that have a, a, a voice are doing. Is it helping the situation or are, are the incidents going up? You know, I mean, wh- like, where are we at at this moment in terms of that? Yeah. Um, right now, it seems that, you know, there are still ongoing hate incidents. Um, There has been a lot of movement in Congress. So I know that there's Senate Democrats actually sent a letter to the Civil Rights Commission um, earlier this month, and it was kind of asking for all federal agencies to issue guidance on, you know, how to approach anti-Asian discrimination um, and how to really deal with that. Uh, And I think that is a step. I think, uh, you know, the people who have talked to say that it is very, you know, it is significant when you do have lawmakers and these public officials that are able to condemn it because there was actually a study about Donald Trump's rhetoric um, and it pertained to the Latinx community. And all when they tested whether his rhetoric would actually have an effect on people and how they decided to uh, react to that community. And so there was evidence that whenever, when Donald Trump did use this, you know, anti-Latinx rhetoric, they did feel more emboldened to say things, 
you know, discriminatory to the Latinx community. And then when people did condemn that type of behavior and lawmakers and, and officials did condemn that type of behavior, there was evidence that that emboldenedness softened. Um, and so, you know, it does appear like there's research that says, you know, when you have these public figures say something about it, there is kind of this softening effect. It doesn't completely mitigate what those original comments did, but it does soften it. You have people uh, like Grace Ming, who just who also introduced a res- resolution to have Congress publicly condemn the anti-Asian racism. It's scary because I do think that for this to really take effect, and for or for you know, for Americans to really sit down and operate from a place of rationality it's kind of difficult to do in a pandemic because everybody's mad. Everybody already has these anxieties. I mean, I feel like, you know, on a personal level, I'll see someone who has a really, you know, woke Twitter and then they'll be liking things that are kind of anti-Asian and and, and it's, it's a strange time. And so to ask people to kind of reroute their brains right now is a difficult thing to do. And I think people are acting out of fear, but you know, this is when, different legislators, what their work, you know, whatever they end up passing or not passing or what their work is during this time, I think it's going to have uh, more of an effect that we pro- than we probably thought it would. Um, and so I guess it's, it's just difficult to tell right now. And so I think I'll probably be talking to more mm-hmm. political experts and stuff like that to see what we're going to look at in the coming weeks. But it is just, you know, there is evidence that if you do condemn things like that, you will soften the effect. And so I, I, I think right now, a lot of legislators are trying to do that. Well, you know, I think I think that that's interesting that you say that because, you know, unfortunately in this country, a lot of times we have to have an ethnic scapegoat for every tragedy, you know, or every every instant, every incident or, or, you know, sort of cultural negative cultural moment. I feel like we always have to have uh, an ethnic scapegoat. And unfortunately, it's it's our turn on the wheel of misfortune, you know what I mean? And I, I think one of the things that you said that was real important, and I think if there is one positive takeaway from all of this, you know, that I've noticed and also from our conversation today, whether it's us recognizing that our, our parents way of dealing with problems in the community, which was maybe to just kind of, put your head down, keep doing the work, keep going. Mm-hmm. Or, you know, maybe in the past where things like this might have happened, previous generations may have just said, oh, just ignore it, it'll pass, we'll get through it, you know. Mm-hmm. One thing that I'm seeing now that is inspiring across the board when we talk about all these kinds of situations is the advocacy for ourselves that mm-hmm. we've been doing. You know, when you talk about softening the response, the fact that I can, I have this platform that's not regulated by anybody else, that mm-hmm. you and I can have this kind of a discussion that's going to be seen by tens of thousands of people and hundreds of thousands of people, perhaps, you know, mm-hmm. we each have our own social media uh, feeds. You, you have other people that 
share our views. They can also be outspoken and advocate on behalf of ourselves. That's huge. That's right. that's not only breaking with you know our our cultural the cultural philosophy of yesteryear in in our community. It's also bringing so much awareness to these issues that people would otherwise not know about. I mean, I think it's relatively well known within the Asian American community that yes, these dangers do exist out there for us, you know, right now in this time period. But I can't tell you every time that I repost something of yours or I post something of mine or I retweet Next Shark or or I repost Next Shark or Asians never uh, Asians never die or something like that where it's sort of related to to anti-Asian violence uh, right now. I can't tell you how many people respond and they're like, what? This is happening? That's terrible. Mm-hmm. You, you, you know what I mean? Like they have no idea. Right. And, um, and I think that's what, that's the huge positive takeaway that, that, that I'm getting from this is that as a culture, we're becoming more, much more outspoken and less tolerant and we're creating consequences mm-hmm. and accountability for bad behavior. Right. Yeah, I, I, I would agree. I think that Asian Americans are getting a lot louder. Um, and I think that, you know, something Hassan Minhaj said, I think in his stand-up once, and, you know, he, he's talking about how someone had thrown like a brick or something like that at his dad's car. And while his dad didn't want to say anything, you know, he brings up how Asian Americans might not deal with police brutality like the black community or, you know, these really grave issues, right? We might not be dying like that, but just because that isn't happening doesn't mean we can't fight for some kind of equality. Um, And I thought that was such an important point because I think that it's taken Asian Americans kind of this long to understand that. Like, you know, maybe something's not right if we don't get funding for social service funding for certain things, or, you know, maybe something's not right if we don't see ourselves on screen, you know, or maybe something's not right if the entertainment industry isn't letting us in. I think it's kind of just, just now hitting us, like maybe unequal is still unequal, regardless of whether it's, there's violence involved or not. Um, And so I think that's a great point. Like maybe now we'll speak out and maybe now, you know, maybe now other people will, will, will be opened up to a lot of these issues because a lot of us and, you know, going back to our, our conversation about like textbooks and stuff like that, a lot of us were never even aware that there was this huge chunk of history or activism even going on in the beginning. So I think now is the time when a lot of Asian Americans understand that unless you speak up in a Western society, you will go kind of unnoticed. Yeah, I think that's absolutely right. And and I think, you know, if that's if that's also the the takeaway that we all as a culture get from this situation in this in, in this time period is that going forward it pays off yeah. when you're advocating for yourself. There it there are positive results that mm-hmm. come from speaking up, holding people accountable, you know, asking questions, 
um, pointing these things out. I mean, to me, it's beautiful when I see this happening. I mean, I can point to 10 years ago, I wouldn't be able to do this. Now I can point to 10 or 15 people. If somebody asks me a question, where can I find out more about these issues? I can say, well, you need to follow Kimmy. You need to follow Next Shark. You need to follow Jeff Chang. You need to follow so-and-so. I mean, there's so many people that I can go to that I can point to now. And I think while it may not be sea change, it's a big deal for us, you know, and I think we, right. we celebrate these baby steps in terms of our ability to be seen and be heard and get this information out there. You know, it's it's oh, yeah. really huge, you know, mm-hmm. and I think moving forward, we're just at the ground floor. And I think as it becomes easier for the next generation of recording artists after me, you know, as it becomes easier for the next generation of journalists after you. Mm-hmm. And as it becomes easier for us, you know, in showbiz and popular culture and and just as citizens in general, um, I think we can all sort of point to this moment and say as one moment where we, we are able to say, well, even though we, we had to endure this terrible, these, these terrible instances, I mean, mm-hmm. we're walking away from this knowing that there was there was a solution there that helped us navigate that and, and helped and, and make the results better for us down the line, you know? Yeah. So, you know, I, I'm just, I'm hopeful for the future in that regard. I think that just you doing what you're doing, being the position that you're in, I think is, is not only is it huge, it's, it's evidence that things are changing, you know, mm. for the better. And I think, like I said, as we grow as a society and a culture, I think the work that you're doing and all, all the battles and the fights that, that you're having, whether the, it's the ones that we see or the ones that we don't see, you know, mm-hmm. I, they're yeah. just so valuable, you know, and, you. and I really appreciate the work that you're doing. Yeah, I, I appreciate your work. Give me <laughs> yeah. Wait, LB, I actually have a question Thank for you, you, if you don't mind, if I'm able to ask. Kick it. Okay. Yeah. So I I've wondered for a long time why Asian American rappers, this whole like hip hop industry, we're seeing something like 88 Rising pop off, but it's it's still not mainstream. You know, like the numbers will rack up and it's still mm-hmm. not mainstream. Do you think anything has any of this has to do with hip hop's kind of attachment to this idea of masculinity and and the history of how Asian males have been so emasculated in the U.S.? That's an excellent question. Me personally, maybe, but I think it goes back to that, that the part of the conversation earlier we were having where there's not, there are not a lot of people, executives, let's call them, in the sort of, institutional corporations that are green lighting any of these things, any of these artists or any of these labels or events Mm -hmm. in order to bring them the mainstream. Do you know what I mean? So in other words, there's nobody there, there's nobody at universal or, you know, Sony or, Etc. Cetera, Etc. Cetera, who, mm-hmm. at least not in, in 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 the mainstream departments in in Sony and, and Universal, that's saying, 
oh, this is important. This can be huge. Let's green light this. We're going to make it. We're going to bring this to our audience. There's no, there's just nobody doing that. And, and I don't know that it's because of how they view Asian males necessarily. Mm-hmm. I think it has more to do with the fact that there's just nobody there that understands the cultural significance of what it is that we're doing. Do, do you understand what I'm saying? Yeah. So yeah. it's exactly what I was saying when, when we would take my music to be reviewed at all these mainstream institutional magazines and outlets. There's nobody there that's going to say, oh, wow, yes, I do see the cultural significance. There is no Kimmy Yam there that can say, oh, yes, this is culturally significant. This is important. We do need to cover this. Likewise, there's just nobody there in those executive suites at those big companies where all they do is promote to the mainstream. There's nobody there in those offices that are that look like us that have the power to greenlight these things. Right. You know what I mean? Yeah. It, it won't be until we can over it won't be until we can overwhelmingly prove on our own that it's commercially viable without a shadow of a doubt. Mm-hmm. It won't it, it, it won't be until that moment where someone in that space will come along and say, okay, now it's safe. I can do this. I can, you know, let's reroute it through our system. And Mm -hmm. that's sort of been, that's been my experience, you know, Mm -hmm. over the years. Now I have a distribution deal with Orchard slash Sony right now. Okay. Mm -hmm. But it happened in that exact same way. I had to go out there and get turned down by every single major label that there was to the point where I said, okay, fuck it. I'm just going to put out my own records. I'm just going to put out my own albums and my own music. I'm going to self-distribute. I had to create a track record for myself. I had to create those metrics for myself to Mm -hmm. show that I was bankable to the point where now an independent distributor like Orchard, slash Sony will say, okay, we will write you a check. We will put your stuff out because we see that you've done the heavy lifting. We see that you've done the groundwork. There's a paper trail there. There's metrics there, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. It's a sound investment. You know what I mean? But I definitely never got the benefit of the doubt in that regard. And I, and, and I think that that's what we're up against. Mm. So yeah. I think it's only a matter of time, you know, when I played Coachella, when I played Lollapalooza, you know, when I played, um, you know, Bonnaroo and Outside Lands and all these festivals, mm-hmm. I was probably the first Asian American to ever do so. You know, definitely the first Asian American rapper to ever do so. And I can remember distinctly, I was probably the only Asian American on the entire bill, you know, for however long. You know, if Coachella was three weekends, I was probably the only Asian American on that bill for the for all three weekends. Do you know what I mean? Right. Ten years later, 88 Rising had their own night. You know what I mean? That to me is huge progress. Not not just that Coachella didn't cherry pick the artist, mm-hmm. but they gave this this group that aggregates all that talent its own night. And to me, that's huge. And that's something we can all be very proud of. And I think we can point to and say, wow, that's progress. You know what I mean? Yeah. Because that 
infrastructure or a platform like 88 Rising. It just didn't exist when I was coming up at all. I had to, I had to go out there and go to war every day, you know, in this system that wasn't built for me, you know. Mm-hmm. I do. I have a follow-up question to that. I promise I'll stop asking questions after this. But do you ever get frustrated when a lot of Asian elements make it into hip hop and that's honored, but it's not when an Asian artist does it. Like I remember being so little and being a fan of Wu Tang, but I didn't, I didn't realize that they They were were. not Asian because obviously if you just hear the music and you, if you hear Wu Tang, you're just going to assume that it must've been Asian people who are like in this group. Right. Or that, you know, even now we see like, you know, Chris Brown has that song, Fine China, which is like very poorly done and one of his worst songs. But did it pop off? Yeah. And a lot of people listen to it and a lot of people watch that music video. Um, does it ever frustrate you when you see something like that? And, and after going this long, it took this long for something like that 88 Rising thing to happen. I mean, like, is that annoying or how do you even feel about that? No. No, I don't think it's annoying. I mean, I, I think I, I'm just, it's just the way that I am. I'm just a very patient person, you know? And I think having been in the trenches and on the front lines for as long as I have, I just see how long it's taken us to get to this point. Mm-hmm. But then I also see how it's, how accelerated it's been just in the past five years. You know what right. I mean? Like, I, I remember I, I used to talk to Randall. I would talk to Randall Park on set of Always Be My Maybe, you know? And we would just, I'm just looking around, you know, and I, I, you know, I'm lucky enough to have done a few movies in my day and I've been on different sets and I'm just looking around and I'm just like, wow, this is pretty fucking special. You yeah. know what I mean? Look at, this is an entirely Asian cast with an Asian director with Asian writers, mm-hmm. with Asian stars, with a big budget, right? you know? And I, I, I just remember saying to him, I'm like, you know, as a guy that, that, like I said, I mean, I feel like I've been out on an island for so long, you know? I, I just remember looking at him, I was like, this is really fucking special, you know, to be in this situation. And then we both talked about it and we would talk about it all the time and we still talk about it. And it's like, not even five years ago would that movie have been possible. You know, mm-hmm. Not even five years ago. And I think the fact that we've made all of these strides in the past five years, it's huge. And it's sort of like the aggregate sum of all the work that we've been doing across the board. So it's, it's what Kimmy Yam is doing. It's what Lyrics Born is doing. It's what 88 Rising is doing. It's what... Um, you know, Transparent is doing this, what Randall's doing, DDK, <laughs> Ali Wong, you, you know what I mean? And then even before that, you know, what Margaret was doing and da-da-da-da-da. I'm sure I'm leaving people out, but I mean, it's slowly starting to come to a head, you know, oh, where yeah. we have people that are recognizable and are slowly becoming household names in some circles, you know, at least. Mm-hmm. And I think it really has no place to go but up. And, and that's the part that I focus on, you know. Right. That's the part that I focus on. Um, 
because I really do believe it, it kind of takes all these slices to make a loaf. And I, I see what we've done in the past five years. So this is what the past five years was. Mm-hmm. Think about what the next 10 years is going to be like, you know, and I'm just fortunate that, and I'm just fortunate and thankful that um, I decided to hang in there and stick it out because now I can actually participate in something that I helped create, you know, I mean, I, I think every day, you know, God, what if I had just quit? Yeah. Like, what if, what if it had just gotten too hard and I just quit, you know, but now it's like, I can participate in this wave. And it, that to me is a great feeling. You know, mm-hmm. it's an amazing feeling for me. Right. Yeah. That's such a good point. It has been crazy these past five years, man. It really has. Yeah. 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 Well, listen, I, I really want to thank you. You know, I think, you know, this has been really enlightening for me. I'm, like I said, I mean, I, I think the, the, the work that, that you've been doing has been so inspiring to me. And I know everybody that I know that I respect also follows you, you know, <laughs> and they, they look to you for not to put all this crazy pressure on you, but they, they, they do look that people do see you as this very credible, real voice you know, in terms of what we deal with. Mm-hmm. And um, I think it's really important. And I think um, we're all very, we're all very thankful and appreciative of the work that you do. And um, we also are incredibly proud of you, you know. Okay. So, so I, I just want to say thank you for doing. Yeah, thank you for doing this with me. And I, I hope we can do it again. Yeah, literally anytime I'm down, I'm game. Thank you. Kimmy Yam, y'all. Yo, thank you for listening to Mobile Homies. Make sure you subscribe and hit me with a five-star review on Spotify, Apple, or wherever you catch your podcasts. For more content, hit up lyricsborn.com. Love y'all. Huh.